Well, we have teaching notes available for anyone that wants them. Just go raise up your hand if you didn't get a copy of the teaching notes on the way in. Be looking at Romans 14 this morning. And uh, you can turn there in your Bibles to Romans 14. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, actually it was the Sunday that David Slyker spoke about wanting to introduce a conversation related to Romans 14 and some of the principles, the key principles that Paul is drawing out uh, from this segment of scripture because I think that it's applicable to us. Uh, One of the reasons why is because we've been talking about John chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer for unity to be established in the body of Christ. This end time promise of this incredible social miracle that the body of Christ will be brought into a place of, of unity and love, deep love and affection for one another. And uh, I'm really excited uh, about this morning because two weeks ago when uh, David spoke, uh, David Slyker out of Romans chapter 12, he talked about being a living sacrifice to the Lord and a whole bunch of you responded. So now we're gonna talk about what it means to walk that out. That's a joke. Okay, Romans 14, I'm gonna read a portion of this, just the first few verses here, and then we're going to set some of the context for what uh, Paul is driving at here and how it relates to us. Paul says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. That is not a knock against vegetarians in the room. Verse three, let him who eats, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to, to make him stand. And then Paul continues on beyond chapter 14. Now you've probably heard this before from different preachers that the numbered chapter headings are not there and so often the thoughts overlap multiple chapters and stretch beyond just those uh, small segments there. Paul then goes into this prayer in Romans 15, verse five and six and uh, I mention it because it's one of the apostolic prayers that we pray in the prayer room. It's one of the prayers that we pray for the church in Kansas City, and it serves as the the prayer that Paul is praying for the believers so that these things, some of them we'll talk about this morning, would be established in the body of Christ. He says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. In other words, this is, the whole conversation that begins with don't dispute doubtful things is culminating unto this end for the desire in the body of Christ to be like-minded and in verse six, to have one mind and one mouth to glorify God. So that kind of sets some of the context. I'm gonna pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask for a spirit of understanding and a spirit of humility on the, the speaking of the word and the receiving of the word into our hearts, Lord. We love you. We love your ministry. 
we acknowledge the way in which your word, Lord, brings life to our spirit but challenges our flesh. And we ask you that your spirit would come this morning, bear witness to that which draws us to Christ and the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul is talking in chapter 14 to the church in Rome, and he is warning them about something that will cause division and strife in the body. And he, in verse 15, or chapter 15, rather, like we just read, his desire is to see unity and like-mindedness pervade the body of Christ. Now, you've probably heard lots of different messages on unity and that type of thing. Uh, This isn't entirely that, but unity, Christian unity, is a very important biblical concept and biblical aim for us as believers to not divide up the body of Christ. Now, without being overly morbid, you know, if you have a body and you remove part of the body, it dies, right? It's no longer a part of the whole body. You know, if you find an arm in the bushes or something, again, not trying to be overly morbid, just get the picture. You know, that's, you don't look at that and be like, wow, there's like a different denomination in the body of Christ. No, you go, no, this is a crime scene right now. I've stumbled across a crime scene. And so you can understand why unity in the body is very important so that we're not creating lots of crime scenes throughout the nations. Do you follow? Okay, so now look back just briefly In chapter 13, if you're looking at chapter 14, just go back a few verses to chapter 13 and verse 11. Just write it there at the end. There's a little section. Paul says, do this knowing the time that now is the high time to awake out of sleep. Now, if you've been on social media in the last three, four, whatever years, you'll see people posting on there, Wake up, sheeple, it's time to awake, awake, you know, and awake, awake, awake. Uh, it's, it's, in essence, using biblical language, actually, but what Paul begins to drive at is a little bit different than our application points as it relates to social media and what it means to be alerted to, I think what people mean is be alerted to what the other political party is doing wrong. Paul says something a little bit different here, He says, awake out of sleep. Then he's going to describe what it means to awake out of spiritual slumber. And this is very important because the body of Christ needs to be awakened from spiritual slumber. So let's look at how Paul recommends we do that. Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. He's talking about our works of darkness. We need to cast off our works when we are awakening from spiritual slumber. It's that we find the areas of sin and compromise within us and begin to address those things in our life through repentance and a spirit of humility. Let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk in the day. Now he's going to list six sins or areas of compromise that are causing the body of Christ to remain in spiritual slumber. Catch this. He says, put off 
revelry, and drunkenness. Okay? He says we're to put off lewdness and lust related to sexual immorality and materialism, all forms of lust, okay? And then he says this at the very end, strife and envy. So he highlights six sins, and he says, when the body of Christ addresses these sins and puts them off, they will, de facto, verse 11, awaken, begin to awaken from spiritual slumber. But he's saying that we need to apply these to ourselves and our own lives. This isn't about addressing the sins of someone outside this room. This is about addressing our own sins and shortcomings before the Lord. And when we're engaging in these sins and not addressing them, confronting them, we will go to spiritual sleep. And that's a negative thing, obviously. Then he says this in verse 14. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Don't give any way for the flesh, for the carnal nature to express its own lust, its own desire. Now, as I've read this verse, Romans 13, this chapter, over the years, I've always applied it, and it's a right application to in terms of making no provision for the flesh, it's like if I'm an alcoholic, it's not a good idea to drive by the bar where I used to get drunk all the time, okay? So I'm not gonna make provision for sin or lust or carnal desire. I'm not gonna put myself in an area where I'm gonna stumble in that sin, now, that's a right application, and that applies to all sins in our life. If you struggle with gossip, don't call your friend that you gossip with all the time. If you struggle with pornography, don't be alone with your computer, okay? We make no provision for the lust of the flesh. So there's actual practical ways in which we avoid the vices of temptation that keep us in spiritual slumber. Do you follow? But listen now what Paul's gonna do. <clears throat> He's going to talk about a way that the church in Rome was making provision for their own carnal desire. And out of these six sins that he mentions here at the end of chapter 13, He's going to really hone in on one in particular, strife. And he's going to spend 36 verses in a row talking about how the body of Christ in Rome is engaging in a certain attitude that is promoting strife and division within the church. Now, Paul wrote, so pause that for a moment, Paul, Paul wrote the book of Romans, right, to the church in Rome. We know that it's 16 chapters long. He's going to devote about a chapter and a half entirely to Christian unity and combating strife so that the church would be spiritually awakened. And I want you to hear that, to hear the importance and the emphasis that Paul places 
on avoiding the sin of strife and the great damage that does to the work of God and the kingdom of God. He didn't take verse, you know, from, from the end of chapter 13 all the way through half of chapter 15 to talk about the dangers of sexual immorality. One, because those things are more self-evident. And two, because there are other places in the New Testament where those dangers are addressed. He didn't take that entire chapter to talk about the lust of drunkenness or the desire for alcohol and alcohol consumption that is beyond what is healthy and sober. He didn't do that. Again, because one, that's more self-evident. He takes the entire chapter to break down the Christian attitudes in the church in Rome that were promoting strife and promoting division. Now, this is why I'm excited about this because this chapter, as I've looked at it the last few weeks in preparation of this, has really messed with me. It's a very uncomfortable chapter. Do you know that the Bible is uncomfortable? It's food for the spirit, but it's surgery to the flesh. So you came here this morning, and if you were hoping for therapy for your flesh, you came on the wrong morning, and we're about to apply the word of God to our flesh so that no provision is made for those fleshly carnal desires. Why? What are we driving toward in the midst of this? We're driving towards, in chapter 15, we're driving towards a spirit of unity in the body of Christ. Look at this down, I didn't mention this first service, but down in verse eight, so that the promises would be confirmed and released. That's one of the benefits of the spirit of unity is that God releases his promises when the body of Christ is in unity. And when the body of Christ is not in unity, Ration Al would tell us that he will not release those promises. He will withhold them. Okay. <clears throat> Paragraph A. These are some of the themes that we've highlighted even the last year or so in a more uh, increased way. Jesus prayed that the body of Christ would walk in supernatural unity in the generation of his return. That's where Christian unity will come to its fullest expression. And he prays in this prayer of John 17, verse 23, he prays that we would be made perfect in one. And that our unity, our oneness, our love and and, and like-mindedness for one another would do something very profound, something that's probably not happening right now. It's so that the world would know that Christ had been sent of the Father when they observe Christian unity. Think about the profound nature of that. Jesus calls his people, his spiritual family, to such a, a high vision of unity, such a deep love, such a fervent love for one another, such a spirit of hospitality and generosity and kindness that when an unbeliever 
experiences Christian community, they would know that Christ had been sent from the Father. I would guess that most unbelievers are not experiencing that when they experience the body of Christ. I think it happens here and there. But for the most part, the idea that an unbeliever, that an unchurched individual, they've no knowledge of God, no relationship with Christ, that they would visit your small group, that they would come into your home, that they would see the way in which you love and care for and are hospitable and generous and gracious and the way that you resolve conflict and the way that you reconcile differences and you major on the majors rather than majoring on the minors, that they would be so provoked by your love for other Christians that they would know that Christ had been sent by the Father. I mean, this is, an, this is an end time picture we're really talking about. We're culminating, but we're all working to this right now. The whole body of Christ is on this trajectory together. We're all in the same boat, going the same direction, this picture of unity and power and love that the world has never seen before. Paragraph B, <clears throat> there are many threats to Christian unity as the enemy attempts to fracture and separate the church over many matters. Of course, this would be his strategy. If you were Satan, I hope you're not, and if you are, well, we've got a program for you. If you were Satan and, and you knew that the world was going to know that Jesus was the son of God because of Christian unity, Christian love, Christian generosity and charity towards one another, your primary strategy, or one of them, might be to fracture the body of Christ. Because then, if the unbeliever would be very confused as to what's going on with this whole Christian church thing. Why should I join a church? Why should I join a a fellowship, why should I go to a denomination when there's a thousand different denominations? You guys don't even agree with each other. You all fight against each other. You don't trust one another. Why would I join that? That sounds terrible. I recently uh, came across a study that was conducted actually in Kansas City by a well-known research group called Barna. Barna did a research group in uh, Kansas City, and they did all these demographics with churches and all this stuff. And one of the most troubling statistics that I came across was that across almost every age group, from Gen Z to boomers and beyond, was that less than 10% of people in churches trusted another church congregant to walk with them through an emotional hardship. Less than one in 10 people. So we're all sitting in this room, and this may not be true of you, but this is what this statistic is saying. We're all sitting in this room, and we don't even trust the person next to us to support us 
through a very challenging time, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, or anything. So we're up here talking about Christian unity, and we're amening. Amen for Christian unity. And we're talking two weeks ago, David Slyker's message, be a living sacrifice. Amen. I'm a living sacrifice. But when the rubber meets the road, we see how incredibly challenging the gospel can be to our flesh and our own preferences. And what Paul is going to begin to expound upon in chapter 14 is how we often assert our preferences, not biblical teaching, our preferences on other people. We try and get them to conform to our convictions. Our convictions about media, our conviction about alcohol, our conviction about politics, our conviction about healthcare. And Paul is gonna take this whole chapter and he's going to go to a, a culturally sensitive topic in the church of Rome, and he's gonna begin to draw out these principles. He's gonna begin to show them you guys are majoring on minor things, and it's causing strife. And remember, if we don't address strife, like he's talking about at the end of chapter 13, we remain spiritually asleep. And I woke up this morning with this I didn't share this first service either. I I woke up this morning with this eerie lullaby playing in my mind. The lullaby of the spirit of the age is getting louder, but it's time for the church to awaken from her slumber. And it was just playing in my mind, like out of nowhere. It was just playing, playing, playing. It is high time for the body of Christ to awaken from their spiritual slumber. But I want to say something that might, that might challenge you. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I, I am almost certain that when Jesus, when Paul here is talking about awakening from sleep, he's not talking about figuring out what's wrong with the other religious or political group. He's talking about awakening from your, from my own agreement with sin, in particular strife, in particular the insistence of doubtful things that I'm putting on other believers. And he's addressing this. And he doesn't care. Like Paul is, he's bad to the bone. He's not trying to make friends. He's trying to build God's kingdom. He's doing it in love. He's doing it in humility. He's doing it in meekness. He's doing it with perseverance, but he's not trying to make friends. And if you know the story of Paul's life at all, he ended up very alone, actually, at the end of his life. Standing alone. Because he wasn't standing alone on Paul's opinion. He was standing alone on the word of God and the insistence of the Holy Spirit that we walk in a spirit of unity, among other things. We have to walk in unity. And we can't take secondary or tertiary issues, make those the main thing, and then determine by those who's in the church and who's out. Who's in the community and who's out. Who's in the spiritual family and who's out. Are you following me here? Paragraph C 
Christians are both recipients and participants in kingdom unity. We both receive it because Romans 15, verse 5 and 6 tells us that it is granted by the Lord. If we ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us be more like-minded toward one another, he will come and help us. There's also a participation where we must, out of obedience, apply kingdom principles and actually do them towards one another and towards other Christians. We have to do them. We can't just sing the unity song, go to the unity march, go to the unity church event in the city, have a big kumbaya potluck, and then just be like, wow, we did it. We got unity. No, the rubber meets the road. And that's what Paul begins to hone in on in the church in Rome. He's going, guys, you, you, you like the idea of unity, but when the rubber meets the road, what it means is it's gonna mean preferential treatment to other Christians who you disagree with on secondary and tertiary issues. You're gonna have to let those go. You're, not, you're gonna have to make, take those conversations and not make them the center point, but make Christ and him crucified and the gospel and the word the center point so that you can live together and we grow together in maturity as the body of Christ. It's a death to self. When you get married and you're in unity, right, the Lord says the two become one. Everybody that's married knows that that means a death to self. Because I can't do whatever I want with my money anymore. I can't do whatever I want with my time anymore. I can't do whatever I want with my sexuality anymore. I'm bound. I'm in covenant. And the body of Christ is in covenant with one another, and we don't get to insist on our preferences. And Paul begins to just hone in right on this. And they could be going to him and going, well, Paul, why don't you just solve the vaccine debate right now in the church in Rome? Is it okay or not, Paul? He says, no, I'm not even gonna answer that. I'm gonna address your attitude as to why you're even asking that and to why you're insisting about something, hold on with me, why you're insisting about something that is considered doubtful in terms of biblical teaching it's not spelled out main and plain while you're insisting that your view is the right view and everybody else is wrong so he goes right in to the cultural epicenter of rome now it wasn't vaccines in that day it was foods and calendar days and circumcision he just jumps right in the fray he just starts power tweeting he's like guys Guys, we've got to talk about the Christian attitude towards one another. Because the enemy, if we're allowing the culture to divide the church, then we are always going to be subject to the whims of the culture and the culture conversation and what's going on in the nation and what's happening on the, the major news sites any given day. That can't be the determinant for Christian fellowship and unity. We can't determine who's in and who's out based on the winds of change that one year it's this, the next year it's this, 10 years. You know what was dividing the body of Christ in 1980? Seatbelt laws. 65% of Americans 
were against seatbelt laws in 1980. And people were saying, you're not gonna tie me to my car. And my point isn't, are seatbelt laws right or wrong? Pastor, where do you stand? That's not the point. The point is that the conversation from 1980, the conversation from this year is not going to be the conversation 30 years from now. And we have, we have a charge as believers to keep the unity of the faith together and not allow the cultural winds of change and pressure and anger and rage and confusion and this and that divide us so that we write off one another and we become the judges as to who's in and who's out of the kingdom, as to who's in and who's out of the church, as to who's in and who's out of the family. We're recipients of unity and that it comes from God, but we're also participants. Ephesians 4, 3 says that Paul, Paul tells us, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You actually have a part to play. And one of the ways is when you feel a conviction that you have, an opinion that you have rise up, you need to walk with wisdom and humility how that is expressed and how what you may carry as a personal conviction won't be wielded against someone else who is weak in the faith. An immature believer. Because there's going to be lots and lots of immature believers coming into the kingdom in the generation of the Lord's return. It's called the harvest. There's going to be transvestites and people that don't look like you, don't sound like you. There's going to be all manner of crazy people that show up here, and I want it to happen. It's going to cause collisions. We think we have problems now. It's going to cause collisions, problems. It's going to be absolutely chaotic, but it's kingdom and God is calling forth his sons and daughters out of darkness and into light. I want people to come into the light. But they may not have the same culture as you, the same food preferences as you, the same background as you, the same views on media and sexuality and political this and that and that. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do when those people come? And that's what Paul is addressing here in verse one. He says, receive one another. Receive the one that's weak in the faith, that's immature. Receive them. Open your heart, bring them in. Don't write them off. Don't take your opinion about what happened last year politically and make sure they have the same opinion as you. Don't do that, actually. Don't let that be the first. It's not that you can't talk about it. It's that you can't insist on things that are doubtful from a biblical standpoint. Paul tells us later in 14 verse 20, he says, if you do that, you're destroying the work of God. Christians can destroy the work of God by taking our personal preferences over secondary issues, tertiary issues. And we meet a new believer. We meet an immature believer. Maybe we are the immature one. I don't know, but we're trying to, we're trying to get everyone else to conform to what we believe. And Paul says, we can't do that. That breaks apart the body of Christ. He says, I want you to receive them. I want you to receive them as 
He says later in chapter 15, this is just so offensive. He says, receive them as Christ received us. Look at verse seven. I don't want you to just bear along with them, just kind of pity them. Well, they just, you know, they had a rough background, so now they're in the church, but we'll fix them. No, not, not like pity. He says, I want you to receive one who is weak in the faith in the same way that Christ received you. How did Christ receive us? He served us. He knelt down in front of us. He washed our feet. He was the servant of all. He, he bore long with the immaturity of Peter and James and John. He didn't write them off. He didn't kick them out of his kingdom. They had really bad theology. They had really bad views of social justice. Do you know what their view was of social justice? Hey, that town didn't receive us, so let's call down fire and just burn them. That was their social justice view. We're gonna do justice Elijah style, Jesus. Jesus go, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're gonna do. He didn't go, you're out. You're not a disciple anymore, you idiot. He bore long with them. Think about how patient Christ is with you. How patient is he with you? How patient he's been with me through the seasons of my ups and downs and my immaturity and my brokenness and my sin and compromises and one step forward and two steps back and, uh, and he didn't give up on me. And he's not gonna give up on you. So he doesn't want you to give up on others. But walk with them. Receive them. Play your part. Why does unity matter? Paragraph D. Number one is that it signals the maturity of the church. The church is moving towards maturity. Listen to this, Ephesians 4. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Till we all come means that's a timing indicator. It means that the church, the body of Christ, is on a trajectory together called the unity of the faith. Not unity on social issues. Do you know that there's people in the body of Christ that believe different things than you do, but they're still in the body of Christ? It's not looking for uniformity. He's looking for unity on the core, most essential issues. Things like, is Jesus Christ the Lord? Is he the Son of God? Is the Holy Spirit real? <laughs> These are the things that Bind us together by the Spirit of God, and we've got to work out the differences of opinion and a posture of humility, of meekness, of long-suffering, and realizing I might be the one that's wrong. I have to hold these secondary things loosely before the Lord and not insist on them and use them as a weapon to brandish over my brother and sister who believes differently. Let's go to the second page. Romans 14 into 15, he begins dealing with Christian attitudes. Not the actual issues. He wasn't saying kosher meat or non-kosher meat. He was talking about the attitude of those that had a conviction to eat things that were kosher as opposed to those that had a conviction that it didn't matter. 
He's talking about the attitude, the posture of the heart towards one another. He says, receive each other and don't get into disputes over things that are doubtful. Now, there are very clear things prohibited in the New Testament, like sexual immorality, like drunkenness, like idolatry. Those are very, so if people are doing those things, you have the, you know, as a believer, you go to them, you confront them, like, hey, brother, I noticed that, you know, you're worshiping a demon. Uh, now, what's going on? <laughs> There are many things in the scripture that are commanded very clearly of prayer, of generosity, of hospitality, of kindness and love. And we're charged, we're exhorted to do these things, to give, although it doesn't say how much to give. So actually the percentage itself is a doubtful thing in and of itself that's divided many churches over the years. How much should you give to tithe? It doesn't say, so it's actually a doubtful thing, but the principle of the command of giving is biblical. Do you follow? But often when we're given a command, we add to it. It's like the Jews that were in the church in Rome were going, well, we know that we're not supposed to eat shell, we're supposed to eat kosher, so we're not supposed to eat shellfish or things sacrificed to idols, and that's all great, but then they were adding an extra law. In verse two, they were only eating vegetables, as if by adding in some other moral principle or moral obligation to their life, they would be found more righteous. There's many Christians that do this today with uh, media. I will never watch any movie that's PG-13 or above, okay? Fantastic. That's not wrong to do at all. That's a, that's a personal conviction that you have that you want to walk out. What's wrong is, is when you meet the new believer and you go, if you, don't, if you watch any movie that's PG-13 or above, you're out of the kingdom, man. That's a doubtful thing that's related to a personal conviction that you have. And we have to hold those a little bit differently maybe than, maybe than we're used to. Paragraph C, the cultural conversation of the day was embroiled in debates over foods, observances of days, and circumcision. Let me, in one minute, paint the picture here. We're running out of time. When the Lord inaugurated the new covenant through the death, the resurrection, and the giving of the Spirit, he called to himself a nation. A nation was formed. A nation was forged through the new covenant, a new covenant people. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, you're a holy nation to the Lord. You're now in the nation of faith. You've been grafted in to the Abrahamic family of faith. A whole nation was born. Do you know how disruptive it is for a nation to be born? It's very disruptive. It's very cataclysmic. 1948, Israel becomes a nation. We're still fighting and arguing about that. People still demonstrate, lose their lives, give the, their lives of their children to fighting the war that Israel should not be a nation. So it's very, when a nation is birthed, when a nation is 
forged, especially by the hand of God. It's very cataclysmic. It's very tumultuous. And then what the Lord does through the new covenant is he goes, all right, we're going to have one family. I'm going to get the Jews. I'm going to get the Gentiles. I'm going to get the pagans. I'm going to get the religious guys. I'm going to get men. I'm going to get women. I'm going to get free. I'm going to get slave. I'm going to get the rich. I'm going to get the poor. I'm going to put them all in one room together. They're going to all have crazy different backgrounds, preferences, tattoos, piercings. Like the weekend of the pagan guy the week before was a lot different than the weekend of the Jewish guy. The Jewish guy's at synagogue, and I said this word at second service, plug your kid's ears. The pagan guy was at an orgy at the local temple. And now everybody's in the same room. And everybody's worshiping the same God, singing the same songs, hearing the same teaching, and having to work in a spirit of unity together. And they're like, I am not like, can you imagine the meet and greets? Can you imagine the meet and greets? Like you turn to the person, like, whoa, who are you? And they're like, oh, who are you? The religious people didn't like the pagans. The pagans didn't like the religious people. They didn't like what they ate. They didn't like what they talked about. They didn't like how they raised their kids. And now everybody is this new nation, a new family called the body of Christ. And Christ is like, this is my body. I love this. You know, he not I love all the strife and weird stuff, but he's like, this is my body. These are my people. They're mine. They're not yours. You're a kid in the family. You don't get to determine who your siblings are. Like, you just don't get to determine that. The father says, I do. And if I bring them into my family, and if they become a part of the family of faith, if they put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior, and as their Lord, he says, they are part of my family. I don't want to divide my family up. So it's this melting pot. They have the same worship and the same mission together. That never happened before. It was, you know, we talk about America being the big social experiment, right? Democracy. The big social experiment was the body of Christ called the church. I mean, there was nothing like that. Nothing, not even close. You've got men and women standing next to each other, worshiping the God. You've got the, you've got the aristocracy with the plebeians, with the peasants. with the, Everybody's in the same room getting the same teaching, worshiping the same God. It's bizarre. Following the same commands. It's beautiful, but it's not without trouble. And it's not without difficulty. And the Lord knows that. There was collisions. There was disputes. Paul begins to address some of these Issues of the heart that were happening in Romans 14, he highlights these negative attitudes. They're despising one another over these secondary things. One guy is going, I don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. The other guy's going, bring the meat in. I'm gonna thank God for it. It all belongs to him anyway, and I'm gonna do it with a clean conscience. And they're free to do that. That's the beauty of it. You're free to have your personal conviction related to things like that. But what Paul says you're not free to do is insist your conviction onto someone else for those secondary issues, for those doubtful things that he's highlighting in verse one. He says, don't do that. That's called legalism. 
Legalism is when you add more laws than are in the book. Do you know the first legalist was? Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 3, she misquotes God. Either Adam was a bad teacher and didn't teach her, right, which is probably possible, guys, we know. Uh, Or she was the first, you know, legalist because God said, don't eat the fruit. But she said, you may not touch or eat the fruit. See, she added touch. She added a law in. It's called legalism. And and the propensity of, of Christians is to add in more laws to what we're doing in order to be welcome in the family. You have to do this extra or else you can't be in. You've gotta do this a certain way or you you can't be in. You've gotta have these preferences or you can't be in. Now there's governing principles in terms of the family and what's permissible, but we can't insist on these secondary things and say actually you're out. You're out of the body, you're out of the kingdom. There are people that believe that, you know, if you watched a rated R movie, you're like, you're out. You're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. I'm like, I'm trying to find that verse where it says, like, I'm out of the kingdom. I'm not advocating for R-rated movies or anything, alcohol, smoking, whatever it is. People are going, no, 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 if you do those things, there's no way you could be a Christian. It's like, well, what if they're just, what if they're a baby Christian? What if they're on their way? What if they're growing up? Everybody's not transformed and redeemed and holy and awesome. Like, have we met us? It's just, it's unrealistic. Like, we just need to, like, take a breath, calm down, go, okay, Jesus is the main thing. We're going to live by the word of God. We're going to seek to apply the word of God. We're going to be discipled in the word of God. And we're moving towards maturity. We're moving towards being conformed to the person of Jesus. So that when we speak, it's like Jesus' words. And when we do stuff, it's like Jesus is doing them. We want what he wants. That's, our, that's, that's the trajectory that we're on coming to maturity in the faith. I'm gonna invite up the worship team. Paul, in Romans uh, 14, verse 17 to 19, I have the verse at the bottom here. You know, these are some questions to ask ourselves. Like, what are my personal convictions that I have? And here's how we know, like, if those personal convictions are of God, are of faith. He'll say at the end of the chapter, he says, whatever is not done in faith is evil. So for the guy that eats kosher or the guy that eats pork, if you're doing it from faith as unto God, it's actually permissible. There's not a forbidding commandment against it. He says, but do it from faith. Do it as unto the Lord. Look at this. Paul says, the kingdom of God, in verse 17, is not eating and drinking. Like We know that. That doesn't really hit home. Let me say it differently. The kingdom of God is not doubtful things. It's not where you stand on vaccine mandates and if they're right or wrong. It's not. It's not where you stand in terms of medicine, if it's right or wrong. It's not. That's not the kingdom of God. It's not where you stand in terms of politics. It's not where you stand in your opinion on the social issues. That is not the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? He says, the kingdom of God is moving towards this. Righteousness, peace, and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. See, our preferences and the things that we put into our lives, like certain standards that we have within our own homes, they're to produce righteousness, peace, and joy. That's what we're after. And when we relate to other people on those secondary, on those doubtful things, it's to produce righteousness, peace, and joy in their hearts as well. Look what he says in verse 19. Pursue the things that make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Let's stand. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open up our hearts to receive one another. Open up our hearts to receive one another in the way that Christ received us. When we think about that brother or that sister that may be immature, that might not have the same opinion that we have, that might have the same take that we have, would you give us courage to let them into our hearts? They don't have to disciple your kids. Let them into your heart. Receive one another in the way that Christ received them. He received us banged up, broken, messed up, bad ideas, horrible theology, weird dreams. I mean, all of it. He looked at us and he said, you're in. You're in. You're part of the family. And it doesn't matter your culture, creed, race, background, this belief, that belief. If you follow Christ as the risen Son of God, now there's a couple other things too, but that, I mean, that's just the core. If you follow Jesus, you believe that the Word of God is true, you're seeking to obey it, like you're in. Father, we ask for a wave of unity in the body of Christ, in this people, in this own spiritual family, Lord, where we have, we've hurt others by asserting our opinions on doubtful things, what Paul calls doubtful things. In what ways, Lord, have we damaged others? In what ways have we been damaged? And those that have been damaged by it, we have to forgive. We have to open our heart to receive that brother or sister as well. Lord, we ask that you would, I'm going to pray this verse from Romans 15. Notice how Paul addresses the Lord even in this. I love this. Now may the God of patience and comfort. God of patience and comfort. As we're sorting out all these other issues, as we're walking together, the God of patience and comfort is here to help us. He's walking with us. May he grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. 
that you would with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for this, Lord. We ask that you would grant us something that we may not be able to get on our own, that we need help doing. We ask that you would grant us a spirit of like-mindedness around the things of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation, and that those would become the, the vision, those would become the centerpiece, even more of who we are in our homes, in our hearts, in the workplace. Lord, we ask you that you would give us humility and wisdom to not assert our, our opinions over doubtful things on others in a way that damages the work of God. Lord, we want to build your work. We want to build your kingdom. We want to build up people and edify the body of Christ using our gifts. Lord, would you help us? Would you bring your spirit and have mercy, Lord, upon me for the areas in which I've come up short? I know I've come up short in this many times. And if not outwardly, I've done it inwardly in my own heart. These things that he highlights, I've despised other Christians. I've shown contempt. I've had wrongful judgment. I've asserted my doubtful opinion about something on a way that caused someone else to someone. I know that I've done that. Lord, would you help me? Would you lead us, Lord, into walking in a spirit of like-mindedness that we would awake from spiritual slumber? We're gonna go into a time and just worship the Lord I want to encourage you, ask, ask the Lord some of these questions down at the bottom that I have uh, on page two. What are the fruits of my convictions? What's it producing in my own life? What's it producing in the life of my children? Am I being too heavy-handed? Is there some legalism involved in there? Am I being too loose? Do I need to actually tighten some things up in my own life or in my own home? over the teaching of scripture. Talk to the Lord for a minute, and then we're gonna open up the altar. Anybody that would like to receive prayer, we wanna invite you to come down. We have a ministry team that's here to pray with you. Maybe you're sick in your body, carrying a heavy burden. Maybe the Lord's touching you in a deep way. You just wanna have someone pray with you. I wanna invite you, come up and stand here on these lines. Brent and the team are just gonna lead us in a time of worship together. Thank you, Lord. Love that erases 
Laying down. 